The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Jim and Carl both have this morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to start the final trading day of the week. And Andrew just told you, of course, we are looking uh, for an up open. But uh, as we all know, given the volatility we've been seeing intraday doesn't mean much these days. Let's get to our roadmap this morning. It does start with ongoing geopolitical risk for stocks, potential signs of progress in Russia, Ukraine, ceasefire talks, perhaps setting the stage for, as you saw, a rally at the open. Plus, economic headwinds. Goldman cutting its U.S. GDP forecast now sees recession odds as high as 35 percent. And new warning signs for tech. Shares of Oracle, Didi, DocuSign, Rivian all moving lower in the pre-market. All right, we will get to all of those, but we are going to look uh, or start with a look at, of course, that market volatility I just mentioned. Stocks, as you saw, are looking to recoup at least some of yesterday's losses. Always nice to have Mike Santoli here on set. Hmm. Uh, when, I, when I fill in on closing bell, I have you here to sort of say, hey, how did the, how did the day look? Yeah. But now I can say, how does the, the day look? Part, yeah, it is. Much harder. Much harder. <laughs> On this side of it. Um, but give me your sense, obviously, given the four days that we've had so far, uh, Michael. We have been uh, really jumpy within a range, and that's been the story for days right now. The high on Monday of the S&P 500 was just over 4,300. This morning, when we got that headline about maybe there's going to be incremental de-escalation, Maybe Putin has something to say that's a little bit, uh, you know, less hostile. Uh, we went up right to 4,300. So the point is, we've we've basically in this sort of general support zone. What has been done already is the big question. What has been priced in already? Um, have we made our peace with $100-ish oil at this point? Oil's not making new highs. It's down for the week. Uh, we basically have compressed valuations a fair bit. You're still seeing a very treacherous tape in tech. But overall, sentiment is pretty negative and I think therefore susceptible to any glimmer uh, of hope. It did, I was joking, uh, have a little bit of a China trade talks going well type uh, feel to it. Remember those days, uh, Morgan, when it was all about, we think that's the thing we care most about. We think we're looking for incremental progress. Eventually, we got real progress. Uh, but in the interim, it was just an excuse for the market uh, to either kind of blip higher or lower in the short term. Yeah, I mean, range being sort of the, the key word there that I'm homing in on as you're talking, Mike, where the equity market is concerned. That being said, if you just were away, you didn't look at the markets at all for the past week, you probably would have missed the fact that we saw some incredibly dramatic, volatile moves uh, in so many different markets in general this week, whether it was in the bond market, whether it was in the crude market, other commodities markets. I mean, it's just been it's been a whirlwind, even if today it seems a little bit quieter. But to your point, it really does seem like at least pre-market are, are these comments from Vladimir Putin about certain positive developments and talks with 
Kyiv that are really moving things right now. And you can see that uh, in futures. So it, it's energy stocks, it's material stocks, and fertilizer stocks that are all under pressure right now. Also gold. Uh, whereas you have copper higher, and then you have some of those names that have been hit particularly hard, some of the tech names, for example. EPUM is sort of at the top of the list in terms of pre-market gains, Mike. Uh, and we know earlier this week that, that that stock had actually sold off because of its exposure in Russia, Ukraine. Yeah. You know, you know Morgan, you mentioned, of course, uh, inflationary impacts of things like higher fuel prices. We've been talking about that for quite some time. And food prices as well. It's still very hard to understand fully the impact that uh, that these deep economic sanctions on Russia are going to have, not just on that economy, but on Europe as well. We've talked so often about rising energy prices there and how significant it's going to be for the European economy. Yesterday, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, did join Closing Bell, and she certainly had some thoughts on uh, both of those issues. We have certainly seen meaningful increases in oil prices uh, that are related to Russia's invasion. Ukraine and Russia are major producers of wheat. We're seeing impacts on food prices, and I think that can have a very severe effect on some very vulnerable emerging market countries. So we'll see something on food, um, palladium, nickel, other minerals that um, Russia exports. Yeah, you know, Mike, a lot of market participants trying to figure out the sort of broader impact. And it's still early uh, in in trying to do that. Obviously, we've seen what's happened in the market for nickel and or even palladium. But wheat and food food is an important component of this that we haven't discussed as much. Globally, um, there is a scramble for physical supplies of lots of things that are not very accessible. So how does that filter into the, the broader economic picture? I mean, I think based on what Treasury Secretary Yellen was saying, it's certainly pushed off by several months at minimum this moment that many were expecting where inflation just kind of because of its own you know, statistical mean reversion uh, and a lot of other factors coming onto line was going to become less of a problem. Now, the core has definitely come off its highest core inflation. Uh, and what does that mean for the Fed at a time when, you know, Goldman Sachs saying we have a perhaps one in four, one in three chance of tipping into recession this, uh, this year? Uh, that's why it's become more complex, just from an economic takeaway, uh, the impact of all this stuff. By the way, th- what Goldman's really saying is, look, the Treasury yield curve implies 25 to 35% chance of a recession based on historical you know, tendencies. And we're just kind of not going to argue with that at this point. And that's both the three-month tenure and the two-month tenure, uh, although the tenure now at 2% uh, once again. Yeah. Morgan? You, I mean, you do have to wonder, though, when you're talking about something like wheat and other agricultural commodities, when you're talking about potential issues and disruptions that could get prolonged in the energy markets, when you're talking about neon supplies coming out of Ukraine, for example, being frozen and what that can mean for semiconductors, you, you, you have to wonder just how much a tightening Fed is actually going to do to that inflation scenario, especially if it does continue to stretch on. I mean, these are key questions. We're going to be watching them with a the Fed meeting next week. But in the meantime, in a little more than an hour from now, President Biden is scheduled to deliver remarks about holding Russia accountable for its invasion of Ukraine. And Kayla Tausche joins us now with those details. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Morgan. This has become a near weekly occurrence. President Biden today is going to announce another ramp up uh, of economic uh, 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 things that it's going to do against Russia. It's going to call for revoking normal trade relations with Russia, 
revoking its status as a most favored nation that had exempted its vodka, caviar and plywood from tariffs until now. G7 partners are expected to make similar moves. Worth noting, any new tariffs would require Congress to pass legislation, but so far Congress has been united on this issue. Yesterday on CNBC, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen declined to say what additional tools the U.S. could use to punish Russia, but she did say she does not see a recession underway as a result of these market shocks in response to the actions taken against Russia. As the war in Ukraine enters its third week, an advisor to Ukraine's president saying this morning that Russia's advances in the country had stalled, telling a news briefing, quote, our opponent has been halted in practically every direction by airstrikes, rocket fire and ground attacks. Separately, Ukraine's president said the war was at a strategic turning point, but he said patience is still needed to bring the situation to an end. And the UK foreign secretary also suggesting Russia's forces outside Kiev may reattempt to take the city in the coming days. So uh, any positive sentiment, David, uh, has uh, in the past been very short-lived as the market begins to realize that uh, that Putin is playing the long game here. Yeah, with uh, utterly terrible consequences. Uh, Kayla, thank you. Uh, Obviously, Kayla will be uh, updating us uh, whenever and wherever we need it. Uh, Let's move on now to some corporate news this morning. You know, uh, if you haven't figured out March is Investor Day month, well, probably... Probably getting the sense for that mm-hmm. last week. Exxon, Chevron, City, Today, AT&T. And I'm forgetting plenty of other names as well that have had their investor days in March, where you sort of set the set the course for the next year or two at least. In the case of AT&T, of course, you're really trying to set expectations for what is going to be NUCO. Uh, in this case, the new AT&T without Warner Media part of it, without Xander part of it as well, much smaller. Uh, and that's going to begin, let's call it a month from now, and uh, when the spin uh, to discovery is completed. Yesterday, I talked a lot about, of course, that bond offering to help finance uh, the deal itself. But uh, today, AT&T laying out what it's calling its growth strategy for the company following the close of the Warner Media uh, transaction. And you can see the stock is responding, at least right now, positively to uh, the press release. It just went out uh, a short time ago couple of key things to to look at. They do plan to double their fiber footprint to 30 plus million locations, they say, including increasing business customers locations by twofold to five million. And they do expect to add as many as three and a half to four million customer locations each year. So they want to become, they say, intend to become America's best broadband provider. Uh, So it's about broadband. And of course, it's about 5G wireless. That's what the business is going to be. The way that we are going to, uh, and the investor uh, uh, population is going to actually judge that is going to be based on whether it can reach its cost savings goals, which are by the end of 23 to expect to reach $6 billion in run rate cost savings. Uh, it did achieve about $3 billion in that through the end of 2021. And then it's going to be about free cash flow. Uh, and uh, I wanted to get to that because the company is, Uh, It says in answering uh, to a certain extent, getting feedback from investors, it's making its financial reporting more consistent with industry peers. How is it doing that? Well, it is now including vendor financing payments as a capital investment. So free cash flow now will be measured as cash from operations, less capital investment, and that includes vendor financing payments. And then any cash distributions they get from DirecTV. Remember, they still own the most of it, but it's it's run by another company. so here's the numbers, uh, pro forma, for what AT&T without Warner would have been in 2021 under this new cash flow uh, formulation, $19.2 billion. That was the free cash flow number for 21, uh, and that can put in perspective where we are now for 22. 
The range, $16 billion. Uh, so down. Why down? Well, uh, $24 billion in capital, capital investments, an increase of about $4 billion year over year as they do ramp that deployment of fiber that I just talked about and 5G. Also, taxes, $2 billion higher than 21. So that can take into account why you're going significantly down in free cash flow, but back to $20 billion for 2023. So that's the way, uh, Mike, this company is going to be judged. Of course, the stock itself has been nothing short of disastrous over yeah. any, any period of time you want. By the way, go back. Take a look at the longer term because it is not a pretty picture. No, absolutely not. Um, and there is a valuation gap with Verizon. And so this would, you know, with AT&T being at a pretty steep discount, and obviously all of this directed at, you know, theoretically trying to close that uh, just a little bit. Whether you're looking at free cash flow yield, uh, dividend yield's about parity right now with the new AT&T dividend level, but uh, PE and all the rest of it. So this is part of that project. We'll have a bit more as we watch that, Morgan. Sure will. In the meantime, when we return, the banking sector down almost double digits since the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We're going to look at what to expect next from that group. And we're on track for a positive open this morning. You've heard us say that. Uh, with all the major averages up, the Dow poised to open up about 200 points, the S&P up 30. We've got more squawk on the street straight ahead. Every day. Thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Let's get more on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. NBC News correspondent Ali Aruzi is on the ground in Ukraine with the latest. Ali. Hi there. Hi there. Yeah, well, yesterday uh, Vladimir Putin said that, you know, some advances have been made in negotiations with the Ukrainians. But here on the ground, it's very hard to see that. Uh, in the early hours of this morning, the Russians widened uh, their campaign and they started targeting uh, fresh cities. Uh, they hit the central city of Neopalm yes, uh, this morning. That's a central stronghold. That's the first time they've hit that city. Authorities there said uh, a shoe factory, an apartment building and a kindergarten were targeted with reports of one casualty. And further out west, they hit uh, the city of Lutsk and Ivano-Frankovic. Uh, they were hit at the very beginning of this war and they haven't been hit this far west 
since uh, the early hours this morning. There were two airports in both of those uh, cities which also had military facilities in them and that's why we believe that they were targeted this far west and where we are in Lviv in the very early hours air raid sirens uh, went off because that's the closest west any bombing has happened since uh, since the beginning of, of the conflict and obviously there is a concern at some point that Lviv may get targeted it's the closest city to the west it's as the only airport with a military facility that hasn't been targeted during this conflict and of course you know the very hard hit places like Kharkiv are co constantly being pounded the mayor of Kharkiv said that in just one day uh, it had been shelled 89 times and 49 schools had been destroyed in that city so it's a humanitarian disaster there as well as places like Mariupol where something like 400,000 people are essentially being kept hostage there nothing is going in nothing is going out but today the Ukrainians said that they were trying to establish some safe zones some humanitarian routes to get people out of there we have to see if that'll unfold through the course of the day uh, certainly do and uh, hope we do as well. Uh, Ali, thank you very much. Uh, speaking of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the financial sector down double digits from its 52-week high. Joining us now is UBS large cap bank analyst Erica Nigerian. Uh, Erica, good morning. Uh, good to good to have you here to check in on this group. We you know mentioned down 11, 12 percent in line with you know with the broader market, but at the same time, bond markets willing to price in several Fed rate hikes, uh, which in theory are going to benefit this group. So, do you think the banks, uh, the stocks, are also priced for for that uh, scenario, or is there an opportunity there? I think the banks. Uh, good morning, by the way. I think the banks are oversold here. Look, at the end of the day. If the, we can avoid a recession in the U.S., even though we have higher gas prices, I think the banks are oversold here. At the end of the day, there's really, you know, two factors that we have to consider that's the impact of inflation. One, obviously rising rates, and banks are more rate sensitive than they've ever been. They have 50 cents of loans for every dollar of deposits. And second, if you look at the regulatory data, you know, the you know, banks are seeing pretty good loan growth across the board from the end of the year. And we are seeing a little bit of, uh, you know, unsettled action in the credit markets, in the public credit markets. Does that not mean that, uh, you know, banks are going to feel a little bit of a pressure on the credit side, especially if the economy slows down? So that's a really good question. So let, let's, um, you know, dissect that into a couple of parts. You know, number one, clearly with higher gas prices, our concern is the lower end consumer. So again, even if we avoid a full-scale recession in the U.S., we would see credit card charge-offs normalizing, right? And so that would hit earnings power. But at the end of the day, I think that banks, you know, because they were so heavily regulated and de-risked de so much out of the global financial crisis, I don't think the corporate credit quality at the banks is something to be worried about right now. So a couple of things. Again, if we could avoid a full-scale recession in the U.S., I think the debt service coverage at the banks could very much withstand, you know, um, let's say 200, uh, 250 basis points higher short rates. Erica, it's Morgan. I mean, just to take a step back, as we are talking about and investors are parsing through slowing economic growth here in the U.S., you are seeing the risk of recession rise based on some strategists' note, including Goldman last night. Um, what are the key metrics you would be watching for, especially in the coming weeks as we do get to earnings, to sort of 
know from the banks, which are seen as early indicators, whether we are indeed moving closer to a recession? Yeah, so a couple of things. Number one, you know, we are seeing low growth, right? And the big question for the banks is, you know, is that for greater working capital? Is that for inventory? Or are those really similar to some of the defensive draws that we saw during the pandemic, right? Because that would indicate that the corporates are starting to, you know, feel a little bit nervous about the economy. Um, in terms of the bank's uh, indicators themselves, we would, of course, look at early stage delinquencies, particularly in card. Again, you know, higher gas prices are going to hit the consumer first. So if that's starting to tick up, that's certainly something that we should watch. And we will. Uh, Erica, thank you very much. Bank set to open up about uh, 1% as a group this morning. Thanks. Well, coming up, uh, a rough morning for shares of Rivian, the EV maker's results and outlook taking a toll on the stock. And it's not the first day that it's looked like that of late. We're going to get to that story when Squawk on the Street returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Airlines are on track for another strong open. Uh, you can see Delta and American United all up rather sharply. Making up for losses at the first day of the week, but generally have been positive uh, since then. We got an opening bell seven minutes away. Stay with us. of Rivian are going to be down sharply, it would appear, uh, in the pre-market, at least you can see that's the case. The electric vehicle maker posting a wider-than-expected loss, cutting its production targets. It's citing supply chain uh, disruptions as one of the reasons why. Phil LeBeau, who's been following it all along, uh, joins us now. Phil. Hey, David, when you look at their outlook for 2022, it's clear this is a company that they have great ambitions and there's still a lot of optimism long term, but they're going to struggle in terms of ramping production this year, building just 25,000 vehicles. They have the capacity for 50,000 vehicles. By the way, when you look at the analyst commentary about the supply chain issues, which involve semiconductors, wiring harnesses, harnesses, electronics, it's clear the analysts are bringing down their estimates. We're already seeing this this morning. B of A writing supply chain taking rivets off-road in 2022, but still moving forward. Wells Fargo, Colin Langan says, market reality sets in after riveting start. Remember how hot they were when the IPO happened? And finally, there's Baird, Ben Callow writing, growing up during a supply chain crisis. Speaking of the supply chain, here's RJ Scringe, CEO of Rivian, talking about those challenges during the conference call last night. 
The challenges our suppliers are facing vary and include company-specific production issues, COVID-related delays, and semiconductor allocations. We're working closely with any of these constrained suppliers to identify component challenges early so that we can support the supplier ramp and develop alternative solutions if needed. It's not just the supply of certain commodities, et cetera. It's the price. And when you look at nickel, and we've talked about this at length, guys, nickel continues to be close to a record high. They suspended trading earlier this week at the London Metals Exchange. Rivian is looking at what they can do to adjust their production of battery cells. And to that end, as you take a look at shares of Rivian, they're going to name a COO next week. They are also working on using lithium ion phosphate, iron phosphate battery cells. Why? Those battery cells do not need nickel. And yes, those will be in standard packs and the range is not as great. The charge time is not as fast as if you have nickel in the battery cell. But RJ Scrinch said during the call last night, we got to diversify. We cannot be beholden just to one type of commodity. If we can diversify away from nickel, guys, that's what they plan on doing. So one indication of the challenges they're facing efficiency. But Phil, this brings me back to earlier in the week when we were having a conversation after your great interview with GM CEO Mary Barra, the fact that that company has been able to secure some of these key supplies, the winners and losers that we're seeing based on, on scale where these materials are concerned. Well, we'll see those winners and losers, Morgan, over the next couple of years, because certainly the industry as a whole is not going to be meeting the expectations that have been set out there right now. At some point, somebody's going to have to say, we're bringing down our expectations. Thank you, Phil. Phil LeBron, we'll have more on that in a moment when we uh, start trading right now. And there is the opening bell. You can take a look at the CNBC Real-Time Exchange back at our headquarters. Mostly green on that board. By the way, here at the big board, the 2022 IPO summit, excuse me, that's at the, uh, uh, yeah, and at the NASDAQ MindMed, a biopharma developing treatments for brain disorders. Uh, all right, Mike, it's been a volatile week. Yeah. Uh, we start off strongly here, although it is no guarantee that we're going to end strongly, of course, when you're still on the air. Yeah, there's the a weekend bell. ahead, you know, and that's that's a dicey uh, that's a dicey situation at this point. Although, you know, you have been able to squint and see some signs that the fever uh, in the markets is moderating just a little bit. I mentioned earlier, you know, crude is still elevated, but not kind of racing to new highs every day. Um, the volatility index yesterday was a very much an anomaly. The market was down. The VIX was down, too, because, you know, when it's over 30, you need huge daily swings for it to kind of keep elevated. And so it's it's seeming as if people have done a lot of selling, done a lot of hedging, but no confidence that we're ready to break out because of all these issues. Naturally, as I mentioned, the bond market before, 2% yield on the 10-year. Uh, and some people feel as if that's going to, you know, at least restrain valuations of equities, given the fact that it's happening as the uh, the economy might slow. Uh, uh, as we sort of, you know, Morgan, try to see whether uh, the the lows that we've, we've hit, and keep in mind, we've been made like kind of three distinct lows this round of, uh, of correction, late January, late February, and then earlier this week. Uh, and so, you know, is the market, as I've been asking all week, bending uh, or about to break? Uh, it's, and it's such a good question, and we don't have the answer to that. But just taking a look at 
the major averages this morning, I, everything is trading higher. Uh, and we are now poised to, well, transports and the Russell 2000s are the, are the only, Russell 2000 are the only ones that are actually poised to end the week higher. Everything else still in the red for the week. All of the sectors in the S&P are higher except for energy. And of course, it is being led by financials and tech and consumer discretionary. Uh, Mike, to your point, it's, um, it's these Putin comments about certain positive developments uh, in talks with Kiev this morning that are really seem to be adding a little bit of lift here. And David, I mean, we, we have to take those with a grain of salt. It's been the experience of not only the world but and officials, but also investors over the last couple of weeks. If you really want to know what's going on in Ukraine and you really want to know what Russia is doing, follow the intelligence. Follow things like satellite images and the declassified information that are coming out of the U.S. and other uh, Western allies right now to really know what's actually happening on the ground versus the rhetoric that is coming from Putin, which I should note, we got those comments something like an hour after critical comments from China as well, which we know is key to Russia being able to continue what it's doing right now. Yeah. Well, Morgan, I'll come right back to you because obviously you spent a lot of time this week in an important defense-related conference. And uh, typical at those conferences, there's opportunities to talk to people on background, not on camera. I'm just curious mm -hmm. if you can share sort of some of the broader thoughts of those those people who you spoke with. Yeah. So it's a, it's another side. <laughs> it, is, it is not the markets and investor side. It is much more of the defense and military uh, and intelligence side of things. I was at the McAleese conference earlier this week, and there was not a single person I didn't speak to that didn't tell me that we just don't yet know how this conflict in Ukraine is going to end, whether it was on camera or off of camera. Everyone I spoke to, and these were very senior level officials, basically warning that the concern here is that we could see things get much worse, much nastier, much uglier, and I hope that doesn't happen. But that based on history, based on the way Russia and Putin have behaved in conflicts in the past, that that's a very likely scenario. And this is a situation that could extend for some time. Now, if that's the case, the key question, Mike, is going to be what is priced into the markets? We've had so many people have come on and said, this could end quickly or geopolitics could be just yeah. a blip on the radar. But you take that, you factor it into the broader inflation conversation we've been having and how central banks are going to have to respond and everything else. And you got to think there's a lot of risk that's not potentially priced in, not to mention the fact that you even have some analysts in the last couple of days coming out with notes saying it's time to think about nuclear war scenarios and pricing that potentially into the market, even if at very low percentage rates as well. It's kind of startling. Yeah. It, well, it all is. And I think that's why, for the most part of the last few weeks, the market has much more been fixated on the potential risk, or at least the wide range of potential outcomes that include a lot of those adverse risks. Um, look, history says, and people repeat this constantly, that geopolitical shocks, conflict, tend not to be the lasting drivers of what happens in the markets. The issue mm -hmm. here, partly, is that all the things we were worried about coming into the year, you know, certain... You know, Growth stocks were too expensive. Bond yields maybe were going to be going up. Financial tightening from the Fed, slowdown in the economy, stubborn inflation. All of them have essentially been exacerbated by the events in Ukraine. So it's much more about a push in the directions we were already afraid to be going mm -hmm. uh, than it is about something something new. Uh, ultimately, though, things do get discounted. Uh, not to get all you know big picture about it, but the stock market bottomed 
in, during World War II after the Battle of Midway. And that was like six months after the U.S. entered the war, okay? So it's not as if you need to see things uh, resolving before the market kind of gets, uh, moves on to something else. But clearly, um, there's enough cross currents here, David, where, you wow. know, earnings estimates for this year even could have vulnerability. You don't even have to worry about war scenarios. Without a doubt. I didn't expect to hear the Battle of Midway during oh, the first uh, 36 chart. minutes I mean, of our show. the market was straight but, up from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, guys, I did want to move on to a story yesterday that's worth revisiting today. Of course, we talked about it. Alibaba shares were down dramatically. JD.com, a number of other Chinese-listed ADRs here in the U.S. were down sharply. Young China as well. You can see Alibaba not, not uh, seen any rebound. And, of course, as we told people yesterday, uh, we got the first five companies that were named under this three-year delisting process under the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. That's something that was adopted back in 2020. Um, you know, certain SEC registrants, mo mostly those based in China, required to submit documentation, make disclosures related to Chinese government control and influence, also make sure that they actually have access to their auditors. It's a process. It's uh, one that's just beginning, but it is certainly giving uh, investors pause. And, you know, these names are owned, by the way, there's a lot of me. Kotu, Tiger, these guys own a lot of these big Chinese companies. A lot of them are big growth names. Yeah. Maybe not so much anymore. This is even separate from Didi and the problems that we've seen there. Mm. And obviously many of these names have been under pressure for quite some time given changes in China in terms of the, in terms of the regulatory requirements of these companies. Uh, but no real rebound. Uh, by the way, uh, for its part, Yum China Mike said, uh, you know, we uh, already obviously have common stock that posts trades on the NYSE and have completed a secondary listing on the main board of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Yeah. And they'll continue to monitor market developments uh, as well. Um, but once you release an annual report, you're going to get added to the list if you're one of these companies. It's, it's kind of that simple. And I do think it's a legitimate question to really ask, given the shareholder base that they have and that those shareholders' ability to own these stocks wherever they're listed, at what point does the you know, absence of a U.S. listing essentially get discounted in, in, in the valuations? And now you mentioned, I mean, so much else going on in terms of, you know, uh, China's own treatment of, of companies and what's happening there in terms of disengagement with the rest of the world, you know, different blocks and all the rest. But uh, it is really fascinating that there seems to be no real low. I mean, Ali, Alibaba's at, you know, eight-year lows or something yeah, like that. Yeah, eight-year lows. By the way, keep an eye on SoftBank share, yeah. shares as well. They were up yesterday, but they still own 25% of Alibaba. It's been, an, uh, obviously, a very important And you'll hear people say it's like the cheapest, company. you know, yeah. internet stock in the world, if you believe the numbers. Right. Know? So it's always right. been... There's a look at SoftBank now, which obviously does reflect that fall in Alibaba as well. Um, speaking of falls, Oracle shares are down about 2.4%. Mike, I don't know if you've had a yeah. chance to review the quarter at all. Um, you know, I'm looking at one piece of research here that basically says it was an inline quarter, revenue accelerated, but, uh, you know, yeah. not exactly enthusiastic. No, and some doubts out there in terms of the sell side response that, that they that the company can get to this double digit free cash flow growth uh, type of uh, type of goal. Um, it's it's interesting because it's a really disliked stock on the you know on the street. Tech analysts tend not to love value legacy type names, and that's the case with with Oracle. It is inexpensive. Uh, you know, the question is, can their kind of transformation and the emphasis on the faster growing parts of 
of enterprise software and cloud, uh, you know, overtake the mature stuff. And um, so it's it's not necessarily a huge move lower, but it has given back a little bit of this premium that old tech had had this nice run mm -hmm. in the later part of uh, 2021. And so now it's just kind of trades at a discount to the market, and it's it's, a, it's sort of a slow and steady story. You could put. HPE and you know IBM in that category as well, where there's a lot of skepticism that they can outmaneuver the newer yeah. competitors. I mean, it's also worth noting that they did see that drop in net income, and they blamed that loss on the tumbling stock price of a couple different companies that they are invested in that have sold off pretty aggressively. And it raises the question, because you do have a lot of these companies across a number of industries that are investors in some of these newer, more speculative tech or thematic tech, if you want to call it, uh, companies. And we've seen those shares sell off so dramatically in general across those parts of the market that you have to wonder if it's going to create more noise for more companies when we go into another earnings season in a couple of weeks. Guys, I mean, David, you mentioned the fact that we are in investor day season this month. Um, I just want to highlight another name that had an investor day yesterday, in-person investor day and that is General Electric. Those shares uh, were trading down about 1% yesterday. They're up about 2% today. Company reiterated 2022 guidance. It issued what was largely seen by analysts as inline 2023 metrics by segment as well. Talked about a separation that is remaining on track over the next two years. I asked CEO and Chairman Larry Culp about what made him feel confident to reiterate 2022 guidance, especially given the comments we saw just a couple weeks ago around supply chain issues. Uh, and here's what he had to say. We've got tremendous tailwinds in a number of our businesses, particularly in aviation, where we increased our outlook for our aftermarket business this year. We know we've got supply chain issues to work through in healthcare, but we're doing that. So we, we certainly could do without the headlines of the last couple of weeks. But over the last two years, this team has built a lot of capability, certainly demonstrated an abundance of resilience. We think that continues through the course of 2022, given what we know today. And of course, GE is one of the many companies we've seen this week that has, or in the last two weeks really, that has said that they have, are halting their operations in Russia and where Russia is concerned. But the aviation comments, David, in particular, got my attention very similar to some of the commentary we heard just last week from Honeywell's CEO and chairman, Darius Adamchik as well, that even though there do seem to be some concerns and uncertainties about how Russia-Ukraine is gonna play out for commercial aviation and aerospace companies, and we've seen that in some of the stocks and how they've traded Boeing just earlier this week, for example, there does seem to be the sense that as we emerge from the pandemic, that there is a recovery afoot and that that is going to accelerate. Yeah. Interesting to see all of those names and uh, and hear from Mr. Culp as well with you yesterday. You know, Morgan, you mentioned, of course, as well, in, in terms of Oracle and some of its equity investments, got to come back to Rivian because, of course, yes. Ford and Amazon, large shareholders there, uh, stock's down about 5%. Amazon, long term, still kind of a blip for them in terms of the overall size of the investment versus their market cap. But we talked a lot about Ford and how helpful that money would have been. Uh, they're a cornerstone investor as well. They're still locked up. Remember, it's 180 days until after the IPO, if I'm correct. It isn't yet. It went public at 78, Rivian. About January of last year, it did a round of, of funding that valued it at $27.5 billion. That was according to CNBC.com. Last July, it did another round, bringing its total cash to $10.5 billion. We didn't get a number, though, on what the valuation was, but it was an up round. 
So 27.5 billion last January, an up round in July, and now you're talking about a market value, Mike, of 35 billion. Yeah. It is conceivable that you're basically where you were last July, although mm. I don't know the exact number. I haven't gotten it from any of the Cornerstone investors, who, as you might imagine, are somewhat frustrated in their inability to be able to sell this stock. Again, public at 78, hit a high of 179. That's that little blip up there. And Which was 100 today. billion valuation. $100 billion market yeah. cap. Yeah. And by the way, uh, $18 billion in cash, including restricted cash right now. So more than half the market cap is cash. The enterprise value is only half of this right now. So that means they can continue to invest and they're going to be negative cash flow for years to come. But yes. uh, that also tells you that this bet on the business itself has really been reduced because of you know, what's happened with the stock. But to your point, they've got the ability to keep yeah. losing billions of dollars a year, which uh, they're doing right now. Yep. That's where they are. That's the plan. Uh, all right, let's get over to Bob Bassani, get a, a broader look at the market and everything else that's going on. Bob. Well, we are uh, up, uh, and which is very nice to see, but it's very tentative. And frankly, traders have lost so much money this week. It's been so choppy and difficult to trade that most people don't put a lot of stock in store in any of these uh, Putin headlines that we've been seeing. But nonetheless, we're up. Just take a look at the sectors. Uh, the main development this week is the topping out of the energy uh, complex and the materials slash metals complex. Most of these uh, energy and metal stocks uh, topped out earlier in the week uh, and are continuing to show signs of, of being very toppy. Industrials, uh, a bit on the flat side. Uh, banks have been flat for the week. Uh, I think a big development is those consumer staples. They have been selling rather aggressively. I'll show you that in just a minute. But I want to just show you the material stocks because when I say toppy, I mean most of the highs were earlier in the week. So CF Industries, Mosaic, Nucor, uh, Freeport, McMoran. If you look at these stocks, they're on either side of positive or negative. But uh, the highs were mostly earlier uh, in the week. The same thing with energy. Uh, most of these energy stocks are, are now flat for the week. Believe it or not, you think like heavens, they, they must be up enormous. Enormously, uh, but they're not. This is what I mean when I say toppy activity. How much farther can you push them? Their estimates for earnings are going to go way up. They haven't moved much, but they're going to go way up. This is going to be a big winner in the earnings season. But the traders are very well aware of that fact. They've already pushed the prices up pretty far. Meantime, I've been emphasizing how rough it's been for consumer staples. A lot of these companies, most of them only get about 40% of their uh, of their revenues inside the United States. Companies like Kimberly, Clark, Pepsi, uh, Procter & Gamble, they have very big exposure to Europe. So there's some issues there for them. Uh, and again, you would think this would be defensive. Uh, counterintuitively, growth is a major problem for Europe. Speaking of growth, I think it's very important that Goldman is trying to get out ahead of everybody uh, by lowering their 2022 GDP estimates. 1.75 now? I mean, I think the street's like two and a half, two and three quarters. So they're rather bearish on growth right now. They were obviously reflecting lower, uh, higher oil and agricultural prices and other drags on growth. Uh, but uh, higher rates, they mentioned, lower consumer sentiments, lower Europe growth. Um, they're trying to get out ahead of this. Now, we haven't seen the earnings come down. That's because we're in a sort of quiet period because the analysts are not moving because we're not through the quarter and they're waiting for the CEOs to talk. But that's going to happen in the next few weeks. You're going to see oil earnings estimates go way up. 
uh, materials go way up, and you're going to see downward earnings revisions uh, in some consumer staples, in some global industrials, and some tech names as well. It's going to be a very interesting earnings season. Meantime, trader sentiment is just awful. Active traders are just getting killed because you can't trade this market. You can't make money when you get 70-point swings in the S&P 500 on a headline in the middle of the day. It's very, very difficult. One simple way to look at this is the AAII sentiment, which is a very good sentiment for average retail investor, not necessarily Robinhood types, but older retail investors. Only 24% bullish this week. The historic average is close to 40%. Uh, 46% are bearish. That's very, very bearish. I mean, normally it's about 25 to 30%. And you see the rest uh, are, are neutral. So bottom line here, David, is nobody's making any money right now because you're a slave to the headlines. Uh, and everybody is looking for signs uh, of more stability. Obviously, we were sitting near the lows uh, this week. And you can't break below 4170 or so, somewhere around there. That was the recent closing lows. That's a kind of important technical level at this point. Back to you. Bob, thank you. Bob Asani. Before we head to break right here, it is uh, time to give you a bond report. Take a look at how Treasuries are faring this morning. You heard Mike mention, of course, by the way, the one week, uh, pretty significant in terms of uh, the move in yields. But you can see we are still uh, over 2% on the 10-year note with a 30-year at 2.382. We're right back after this. Well, the Dow Industrials average is up about 1% right now, poised to end the week fractionally lower. Here are the worst performers in the blue chip average. It's Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble, both poised to end the week down 7%. Speaking to multinational companies and exposure and the weakness we've seen in consumer staple stocks this week. Also McDonald's, which closed its stores in Russia, down 4%. Disney and Nike also tracking losses for the week. Squawk on the Street, we'll be right back. What happens when a sanctioned country defaults on its debt? That is a big question for holders of Russian debt. Leslie Picker joins us now with a look at the exposure there and what it means for the bonds. Leslie. Yeah, David, we're really in unprecedented territory here. The market is indicating a high likelihood of default. Credit default swaps, which compensate investors if Russia is unable to service its debt, are surging this morning, up about 34% earlier. Yeah, you can see there, 34% higher. Russia has more than $100 million worth of interest payments due next week, but it's unclear that Putin will be willing and especially able to pay given the wartime financial sanctions on the country. Bond funds within Russia with Russia exposure are seeing outflows and performance marked down as a result of the recent sell-off in bond prices. The U.S. domiciled emerging market funds with the highest percentage in Russian debt include Voya, PIMCO, and Capital Group's American funds, according to Morningstar. The massive sell-off in Russian bond prices as ratings agencies cut them deep into junk territory has already caused a performance hit for many of these funds. PIMCO's income fund, for example, had been outperforming its benchmark benchmark, and thanks in part to its Russian exposure, now is underperforming, down about 5% this year. But the exposure is still relatively small compared with the overall assets these firms manage. Russia only has about $40 billion in euro euro and dollar-denominated debt, plus any other derivative exposure that these funds might have. However, a default could mean no recourse for bondholders to get their money back. I just got off the phone with Jane Newman, a hedge fund manager who specializes in sovereign debt, and he said that the Russian bond contracts have 
an unusually minimal creditor protections in a traditional restructuring has never been done with a sanctioned country of this size, guys. So interesting, Leslie, and a lot more there, not to mention the mechanism by which the U.S. is cutting Russia off from its reserves. Um, thank you, Leslie Picker. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.